0: Did you all see the iPhone 10 announcement yesterday, earlier this week?
1: Earlier this week, yeah.
0: What's amazing to me about that is nearly all the details leaked out there, but the presentation was still just great and amazing and interesting, and they were telling us about a new phone and a new watch and things that Mm. we might buy, we might not. There's a new one almost every year, but you're still sitting there feeling like it's Christmas and excited.
2: Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm your guest host, Julia Slattery, and for our first ever double episode of the podcast, we're bringing you interviews live from the floor at Industry Summit, the largest product-focused conference in the country. We recorded so much great audio during the event that we're going to break it down into two separate episodes for your listening pleasure. This first episode will include all of the interviews that took place on day one of the conference, and the second episode will have all of our interviews from day two. Tune in to this first episode for interviews with the likes of Blade Cotelli of Sonos, Josh Anon, most recently of Magic Leap, Melissa Perry of Products Labs, Bob Mesta, and more. Sit back. Relax and enjoy this series of interviews with some of the leading minds in the product space to hear what they were speaking about and were interested to hear about at Industry Summit last week. So we're here at the industry conference, and we have Blade Cotelli here talking with us. He'll be speaking later today. We're happy to have him here. And Jennifer Ives is also standing here with us Thank to you. talk with us. So, Blade, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do.
3: Sure. So um, I do two things. Uh, okay. I specialize in design thinking and innovation, and I lead a group at a company called Sonos. We make smart speakers for your home, wireless smart speakers for your home. I have
1: many, mm-hmm. many you? in my home. Oh. I'm, I'm addicted.
3: They're fantastic. <laughs> So thank you for that. They sound that. great. Yeah, they're they do. And They're just going to keep getting better. Oh, I love it. It's great fun. So I lead a group there called Advanced Concepts Lab. It's all about trying to define the future, future experiences that we're going to create. So it's really fun. Um, and I teach over at MIT. I'm a senior lecturer there. I teach design thinking and leadership, so how you have engineers learn the skills to be a designer that makes uh, solutions that people want to use right. and have the skills to be able to reify, to make them real, and to bring them to the environments they work in, uh, whether it's Apple or Adobe or somewhere else that they go to after they graduate. That's
1: brilliant. How long have you been doing that?
3: Uh, I'm coming up on the 10th year teaching at MIT. Wow, wow.
1: MIT was early into this then. Yeah,
3: we have uh, the Gordon Engineering Leadership Program. Bernie Gordon founded this, and he he started a company called Analog Devices. Mm -hmm. And he learned over many, many years that the MIT kids are very smart, but he didn't want to hire them. He said, look, they're really good, but I need something to get done on time on budget. And the MIT kids would have a great answer that was really late. So he would hire Northeastern kids. And so he said, look, I want to give you some money so you can to start this program and, and teach the skills that the MIT students need to learn. So the program was started about 10 years ago and I came on to teach this class on design thinking. And I've been doing it ever since and I guess um, Next fall, we'll do a reunion of all these teaching assistants, are all getting together um, and and talk about what's happened over the last 10 years.
1: Yeah. Before um, we let you move on to what you're going to be talking about today, I have to jump back to Sonos. I've already told you I'm a big fan. Right. You mentioned that you are an innovation and you you alluded to some cool things coming out. Can you share maybe one or two of those very cool things?
3: I absolutely cannot share any of those cool things, but I wish I could. But there'll be a number of wonderful things happening and I'll tell you we're we're just cruising along having a great time together and we're innovating very heavily.
1: Yeah, it's a great project. Thank you so much, thank you. All right, we're gonna jump over to what
2: you're gonna be revealing
1: today, what you can talk
2: about. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So Jennifer said you're speaking later today. Can you give us a little preview about what that is?
3: Yep, yep, so I've seen over many years uh, lots of people develop very innovative solutions, and I've, I've worked. I've been lucky enough to work in com- with companies, for companies, and, and as a consulting to other companies uh, on solutions that I think were successful. And some of those companies include Apple and FedEx and E-Trade, and a bunch of other companies. And what I found is that there's different ways people can become innovative, but whatever you do, you always do the same thing. And most people don't acknowledge this. And what I I'm going to talk about today is this this section that people not just forget about, but almost keep from happening, that keep people from being truly innovative. So typically you have a design process. If it's a good design process, it's designed so people can um, be factored into the equation. And you say, look, I'm signing it for people, so I'm going to know who the users are. I'm going to test the solution. I'm going to be iterative. I could use Agile or Waterfall, but I'm going to be iterative about my thinking, about getting people involved, listening to them, ethnographic research. You can have a great process. You can work to innovate on every single step, and that is table stakes. But there's a thing that happens before that, and this is the interesting part, that no one does. Before you do that, there's a problem that's been stated. Maybe your boss came over and said, hey, look, Apple wants this solution, or FedEx wants this solution. And most people think, oh, well, that's their problem, it's been articulated to me, I should solve it.
2: Simple. Yeah. It,
3: as if, and it happens as all if. the time. Yeah. You know, it's, when you're in school, you, never, you don't challenge the teacher. You don't say, hey, hold on a second, why am I learning this thing in calculus? You just say, okay, that's the, what I learned today, and you know, I go home, I do the homework. Your parents say, what you learn today? You said nothing. And you go your homework because you're never taught to challenge the you're assumption take, you're that's the even order worth almost. exactly you're right. Just, you're just, just taking an order. In order. That's you're taught to not challenge. So the first thing to do is to challenge the assumption that the problem is even worth solving. And there's a whole process that I'll talk about today that is about that section. And when, here's how I learned it. I was working and I was you know young. I was out of school a couple of years, and my boss said to me, "Hey." How are we doing with this thing? And I told him, exactly. And he got really nervous. We we're halfway through the project and almost nothing's been done that he could see. Nothing tangible. Okay. And I got anxious. I thought I was doing the right thing by trying to figure out the problem and think about the problem. I was aware of the deadline, but he didn't feel confident about that. Now, this is a reoccurring theme in my life where people are like, what are we doing? And I'm like, I got it under control, but they don't see it. And I don't know what to show them. There's nothing to show. Okay.
1: Trust me, exactly. it's but, all in my Exactly, but head. it
3: would still work out. And of course, you know, there's a lot of, it's like we get the project managers on here to, to make sure everything's happening, we have more meetings, okay, fine. But in that first half of my work, I was really getting into the problem. Is it a problem? I know you said it was a problem. I don't know if I believe it. I mean, I believe it, of course. But why do you think it's a problem? Just because you said it doesn't make it a problem. And on which axis is it a problem? And you said this word, but what does that word actually mean? I mean, I, I know what the word means. Obviously, I can look up the dictionary. But what does it mean in this context? And today I'll talk about how you know, some companies uh, are, are afraid to explore certain things like certain words. You know, Kodak invented the, the digital camera. They invented it. And they said, oh, oh, oh let's stop that right now. We do not need that ridiculous solution because what we do is make chemical solutions for photography. Right. We're not a digital camera company. Yeah. Now they were smart. Because one one guy in the patent office said, oh, or the patent group said, we're gonna patent that thing. Let's
1: do that just in case. Just in yeah. case. Just, just in case. case. In case.
3: <laughs> yeah. But otherwise, that was a problem because they didn't see what they were doing at the core. <laughs> They'd grown to a company that didn't see that they provide the opportunity for people. To take the world in in a certain way and make something incredible and as a result they, did, they were not successful right yeah. so it's all about that process of understanding what something really is getting underneath it and creating something where that anchor point i call the experience center line is defined
1: and so are you going to be talking about the experience center line this afternoon?
3: exactly uh, exactly and then how you everything else you do after that is all things you do to bounce against and to preserve that experience center line.
1: When you talk about the experience center line, what is the reaction? If someone's hearing it for the first time, right, you're teaching a class or you're talking at a conference or you're just talking kind of one-on-one, five-on-one with, with engineers and product managers and designers, what do they say? Is it an aha moment for them, or, or like, what's
3: what the I, reaction? I'm looking forward to finding out. Ah,
2: uh, all right.
3: This is the second time I'm talking about it in a week. This is my newest theory of design. Okay. I've been working on it for a few years. I've okay. been bouncing it around to certain people. People who are in design fields, uh, mm-hmm. professors in it, say, oh yeah, that makes complete sense. Like, it's very, at once, understandable. And if I think if you talk to people and you show them the story, it's clear. But will they actually do it, put the effort into it, and, and set aside the time? for it, that's the question. Um, and lots of people have articulated this kind of a thought in different ways. Whether it's I spend more time than the other person does. There's a documentary about Hugh Hefner and Playboy magazine. And he would sit there and really think deeply about the people who were reading it what they needed in terms of articles and he'd want to be relevant. He wanted to have parties where different kinds of people from who were the equivalent version of philosophers would get together and talk. It wasn't just about, you know, naked women in that case. And he made this publication where he spent all that time in that space challenging the underlying assumptions and innovating. We see innovation all over the place. You know, the the idea to have uh, cameras at the Queen Elizabeth's for a nation, yes, was a big deal. First time ever. First time ever. You have to, because they be- wanted
1: to bring her to the people exactly. using new technology. Exactly.
3: Yeah. yeah. And to say to have that decision to say, okay, why are we doing this? Is it for me? Is it for us? Is it to to consecrate? To, oh, it's actually part of it. Certainly, is a representation of of what we're doing for the people, and they can't all come in here. So we'll bring it to them in a certain way using new technology. That's innovation, and to have that deep thinking requires a different angle.
2: Absolutely. Awesome. Well, I don't have anything else, unless you all have anything else. I, think you <laughs> well, I guess really it worked. I guess it works.
1: All right. Well, and we do not want to take too much away from what he's going to discuss this afternoon. Exactly. We got some teasers.
2: Exactly. We got some teasers. Got some we work. got to teasers. share his new ideas and new thoughts yep. with us today. Very excited to listen to your talk later.
3: Thank you very much.
2: Yeah, and to read your articles on it. I hear you have something coming out later. I have
3: a medium post coming out soon.
2: Love it. Looking forward to that. Great. Thank, Thank you. you so much for stopping by. Really happy to talk to you. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you, Blake. Thank you. We're here
1: with Josh Annan of Magic Leap, he and Jonathan just stepped off the stage from their talk shop and we wanted to bring them on over to continue the conversation on the podcast. Here we go. We're here at Industry Product Summit, Josh, you were just talking about storytelling, can you tell me a little bit about your background, how did you get involved in storytelling?
0: I was really fortunate because I got to start my career at Pixar Animation Studios and I was able to learn from kind of the masters of storytelling. My first film, I was actually an intern on Finding Nemo, and I was working in the software development group. It's like, okay, story, yeah, that's the thing that those people do. It's kind of cool and we see some neat stuff, but I'm writing code. And I was there for about 10 years, and I was fortunate enough to move to production and actually work directly on the movies, a variety of roles, was a cinematographer for a long time. But that just got me more and more involved in the story and understanding it. And then I started to get interested in screenwriting, too, and taking classes around it. And then at some point in there, I was internally kind of acting as a product manager as well. So I just started putting the pieces together, and I found over my career, it's been really useful and successful. And it's a way that I don't think everyone thinks in, but it's made me successful. So I've tried to talk to others and explain just why I find it valuable.
1: Even with some of the, you know, when, when you break down, and I'm going to ask you to do that in just a minute, kind of your, your, your key takeaways or here are the three to five things that in a story are really important for someone to discuss and, and really, really implement and, and bring into their story. But how long did it take you to become a really good storyteller? Some people are more naturally inclined and then given that framework, you know, the framework that you're going to share in just a minute, but how long did it take you?
0: Honestly, I have no idea. Half the time, I still feel like I tell bad stories most of the time, but people that I'm talking to seem to enjoy it, or at least when I watch their face, they're reacting to it positively. It's like, all right, I will keep going. If you start squirming or making ugly faces, then I'll cut it off.
4: Oh, that's that, that's when is a defensive technique you always go, and they can't all be winners. <laughs> or uh, my, my favorite, the stories get worse from here.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> that's a good one, that's a good one. So going back to, getting back to the framework, what are your top re- recommendations for those just getting involved in storytelling or those who are fairly good at it but want to tweak it and become even better?
0: I guess the three top things I think about are, number one, what is it that I'm really trying to say at the core, what's the point I want to get across How do I want to move the audience from start to finish? The second one is knowing my audience. I almost never tell the same story the same way twice. I always try to customize whatever I'm saying based on who I'm talking to, and I try to do my best to guess maybe where they're coming from, to know what might be the points they're interested in based on what I know about them. And also even to what you just asked me, I try to react a lot to what they're saying. So if I see that they're looking a little bored, I'll move on to something else. And then the third one really goes down to paying attention to the detail. And some of that goes back to reacting to the audience where if people are really enjoying detail or eating it up, I'll try to give more and draw it out a little bit. If I'm getting laughs, I'll play on it. If I have a joke I came up with that people reacted well to, I might go call back to it later. So there's something in there where it's, How do I try to be entertaining and tell a story that they're connecting with and interested in? And a lot of that actually comes down to the details that I'm giving. Conversely, if you're giving too many details, you'll notice people tuning out.
4: Well yeah, the story will bog down under its its own weight. And it, it, it makes me think of one of the questions we were asked during the, the talk Shop session where, where somebody asked, how do, we, how do we do stories in written materials? Because that's you know almost, am I an author in my in my my PRD or my BRD or and, and he referenced Dex very specifically and I and I wanted to scream out so very loudly that most decks are just a presentation of facts and the effective decks are all a story, right? They've got a beginning, a middle and an end and they're created with the flow. And I think that there's so much missed opportunity for people out in the business world for, for thinking about it as a presentation of information rather than a narrative. And when you can do that, it, it, it unlocks you know, an entirely new level of masterclass. It's funny is at a
0: Nameless company I was at recently, they sent around a new presentation template. And my first reaction is, okay, the default font size is 12 point, and it seems like these are designed to just create mailable decks and not actual presentations. So my immediate reaction was, can we have something that's actually designed for presenting? So to me, if a presentation in or deck is more about a couple keywords in images to support your point, it forces you to think about what's a story I'm trying to tell, as opposed to just, we're gonna take an hour of our lives and I'm gonna read you things that I could have just emailed you.
4: Yeah, and you know, a little while back. We were doing a round of, of promotions. We opened up a couple of director of engineering positions uh, in, our, in our organization in an open call. If uh, an engineering manager was interested in the position, they could apply. And I changed the process around on them a little bit. They, you know, Instead of an interview that they thought, I said, all right, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna give us a job talk instead. So I want a deck, 10 pages, about why you and your project are awesome. And fantastic. And one guy actually shrunk the default template down to eight point just so he could put more reasons in Oh. And then the guy who got the job, the the guy who got the promotion, had no words and ten pictures and used it the entire opportunity to bring us into the story that was his career that he told through imagery. And and it just goes to to show where it that can apply in your career. Not just are you, you know, able to get your product to the market, but you know, how does that that methodology and that thought process really help you advance?
0: Did you all see the iPhone 10 announcement yesterday? Yeah. Earlier this week?
1: Earlier this week, yeah.
0: What's amazing to me about that is nearly all the details leaked out there. But the presentation was still just great and amazing and interesting, and they were telling us about a new phone and a new watch and things that we might buy, we might not. There's a new one almost every year. But you're still sitting there feeling like it's Christmas and excited. And it all comes down to what's the story you're telling and how do you put it together, et cetera, and the narrative they build around it, showing why the new product really is the best ever and so compelling, and why you'll be up till midnight waiting to pre-order the model you want.
1: God, that's a great example.
4: It, so I'm, I'm curious. You, you talk about almost never telling the same story. Oh, I wanted
1: to ask that too. Yeah,
4: go ahead. Every time. I try and tell the same story the same way repeatedly. Uh, to try and get, uh, you know, traction and try and create this, this singular worldview through, through story. So that way, everybody, so rather than presenting the material a different way to speak to them, I'm trying to present the material the same way to bring consensus of viewpoint a- around the narrative. What do you think of that? So
0: do you really never change what you're saying depending
4: on the audience? I, I change what I say because I have a terrible memory and I'm, I'm uh, sort of prone to exposition, but the, the sort of the key points or the drivers of the story uh, generally stay the same. So I might say, you know, three trees in the Enchanted Forest and two unicorns one time and maybe say four unicorns, And that's just because I'm colossally unconcerned with the details. It's, it's about the trees and the unicorns and describing them with evocative language so that everybody understands that's what's in the Enchanted Forest.
0: Since you're asking this question now, I'm worried that I didn't explain this well enough on stage. <laughs> For me, what it comes down to is the details in the way that I tell it will vary each time, but the core of the story will often be the same. The only time I can think of is when I try to make everything the same is when I'm doing press briefings and I have something scripted, and even the jokes are scripted. And then there's always the bit of, how do I make sure that I'm staying fresh and entertaining and like reacting well to the jokes? and you hope whoever the PR person in the room is able to do it too. But I think we're both saying the same thing, where it's, we will have some story or something we're trying to convey, and we keep the core the same, right. and the ingredients are the same, but the way we tell it, we customize, whether it's our memory or the audience or what have you. Okay. okay. So, so it's,
1: even, even small changes, even small tweaks, you would, you would put under the the banner of the story's been changed, it's been made appropriate to that particular audience.
0: Yeah. When I give talks about storytelling, I usually open with the story like I did today. And that's something where I have kind of a framework and the overall thing of what I'm going to say and where where I'm going to go, I have my big signpost, but the exact details I do vary a little bit just depending on the room and what I'm feeling like and how the audience remembers. But it's still essentially
4: the same story and it gets people's attention. So when you're telling these stories, I, I, I'm curious, and this is for, for people who are trying to get into this, especially in public speaking, are you using notes or do you have these stories down so cold that, that you, can, you can sort of recite it like a telling of the Iliad or the Odyssey back in the, back in the day? Depends a little like bit. And I'd like
1: to see that, by the way. I'd like to hear it and see it when you do that.
0: I don't think I could recite the Odyssey. No. It's <laughs> a reason I never got into theater. I generally do try to have some keynotes or key bullets in some of my slides in the speaker notes to know what this is about, but I also try to know my presentation well enough that if for some reason I couldn't see it, I can still give you the bulk of it. I'm sure there are little bits and pieces that I meant to say that I forgot or that maybe were even in the bullets, but I just wasn't looking at them as I was making eye contact with the audience and missed. So it's some mix of the two. Okay. A lot of that is I was fortunate and did speech and debate a lot in high school and college, so that got me okay. very well prepared for public speaking and get up, and especially when you're doing impromptu speaking, just getting up there and having a little note card and being able to come up and riff, et cetera. It's, it's good practice for it. Well, this
1: will actually help us close out today's conversation with, with two questions. What are What is your top takeaway, given the fact that you do so much public speaking? You've been speaking since high school, it sounds like. What's what's the one thing that you, you talk to someone about, whether they're new to public speaking or they are someone who's done it a lot, um, but, but your top tip? Take a deep breath before you go on stage. What, what is the... What do you do? What's the one thing that you always do? And it'll change for each person.
0: I think the fundamental thing for me is talk to the people. I remember old speech coach in college used to say that, just talk to the people, everyone. But what it comes down to is public speaking seems scary, but people aren't rooting for you to fail. They don't want to listen to a bad talk, they want a good one. They're rooting for you to succeed. So if you get up up on stage, you talk to them like they're people, you use words, they're gonna understand, you try to connect and resonate and react just like you're having a conversation standing next to each other, it goes a lot better. And if you want to take a deep breath before you go out, that helps
1: too. Take a deep yoga breath. So my, my final question, our final question is, what is your top takeaway for someone in terms of t- storytelling, someone tomorrow? right? So what's the one thing? You mentioned on stage the don't think in terms of bullet points. Start to train your mind to think in terms of a story. So that's my big takeaway from, from your conversation earlier today. What, what is another takeaway that you would love for for our community members and audience members that listen
0: to the podcast? Product managers are often pushed into using data and emphasizing that data is the most important thing. I mean, Heck, if you try to interview at Google or Facebook or something, you will have multiple questions about data and metrics and analytics, et cetera. But you need to remember that data by itself is meaningless, it's just a number. And story is what lets us take data and put it together into a coherent narrative that we can take action on. So I think just remembering that there's more than just data, more than numbers, and just having that is meaningless. And that story is that connection that lets you take things to the next level. To me, that's an important takeaway, second to what you
4: mentioned.
1: (laughs) Hey, thank you for joining us today. This was such a pleasure, such an honor.
4: Thank you for having me. Thanks so much.
2: All right. We're here with Melissa Perry, who opened. You had one of the first talks today at the industry conference. We're really happy to have you here. So let's start off with you giving us a little bit of a background. Who are you? What do you do? Um, What was your talk about? Yeah. um, So I'm a product management
5: consultant and teacher. So my company's called Products Labs, and we help uh, companies all over the world kind of grow into product organizations. So training their team, implementing the
2: processes and the practices, and helping them build things that people like. Awesome. Very nice. And your talk was called The Build Trap. Can yes. you give us a little bit of a background about what you talked about, that kind of thing? Give us yeah. a little summary. So the build trap
5: is a sticky situation that most companies get into where they focus on shipping as many features as they possibly can mm-hmm. instead of features that really matter. Okay. So the build trap is when you get stuck just kind of like building and building and building, sometimes not shipping, but... Usually just shipping out a bunch of things that people don't like. Uh huh. So my talk was all about how do I use good product management processes, um, so strategy, processes, and culture to really break out of the build trap and focus more on the outcomes rather than the outputs.
6: Very nice. And I love that. Because the the basis of our product mindset that we talk about at Three Pillar is focusing building on outcomes is the first value, or building for outcomes is the first value that we espouse for the product mindset. So here you say this, I'm like oh my God, someone else gets it. Yeah, and someone else really understands that, like. Doing things, activity doesn't equal yeah. value, right? Yeah. There's a lot of um,
5: I see a lot of people constantly in motion and building and building and building. Like there's there's teams that I witness like working 80 hours a week yeah. and they haven't shipped anything or they haven't built anything that really matters, mm-hmm. even if they are shipping.
6: They look mm-hmm. super busy, yeah, and they're like pushing velocity numbers like yeah. wow, and then but you realize they've done nothing. nothing for their clients or that provides any kind of value. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I was like, oh, this is amazing to hear someone else say it.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. And also during your talk, we both noticed you used a lot of cats. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Explain the cats a little
5: uh, bit. Yeah, so, I, so the first time I ever gave a talk was in 2013 at the Lean UX NYC conference. Okay. And it was in front of like 300 people, which is a lot for your first talk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was a very short one, too. It was like 15 minutes long. And um, they were all 15 minutes, too. It's a different format. I loved it, though. But I, I was really nervous. And I just said, if I, I guess if I can make people laugh. Yeah. I can take the attention away from me being a little nervous. Uh-huh. Uh, so I like resolved myself to just make my slide deck as ridiculous as possible. <laughs> nice. um, so I put in a couple memes and uh, one of them, one was that like build all the things type uh, mm-hmm. girl yeah. with her hand up in the air and the yellow star behind it. And then another one was the do not want cat. Like the cat that just like, I oh, don't want this. And I, yeah. I had like two or three cats in that slide deck. And the rest was pretty like self-forward. It wasn't it wasn't probably as ridiculous as my slide decks are now. <laughs> but people went nuts for that cat. Like it got tweeted, it got picked up. There was thousands of retweets. (laughs) Everybody was coming up to me afterwards going, that cat. And I was like, okay, maybe I'm onto something. So (laughs) the next couple conferences I went to, I kept putting more and more cats in. And again, like everybody was like, the cats, like look at the cats. Um, So that kind of became like, I guess my brand for talking. The thing, yeah. Yeah. And I was in in Berlin last year um, speaking at Agile Testing Days and somebody was like, you're that cat. Lady, and I was like, Oh god, I don't know if I want this name. But. Yeah,
6: <laughs> but yeah, it became a thing. It's memorable, yeah, it's yeah. great. Even on the website, there's the kitten walking away yeah. from the explosion. That's that one. I, I love like, it. I, yeah, I, I like,
5: I, I feel like everything should be taken with humor some right. stuff is just like too i i get bored very easily mm-hmm. so i try to keep people not bored right. so even my class like i've just got videos with there's like a sloth that blows shit up in it like it's just it's absurd um so i try to keep people engaged that way we <laughs> use the party parrot a lot Are you yes. with the party parrot? i love the party parrot yeah, yeah. <laughs> i feel like i i like i I feel like that embodies me. Like, yeah, it
6: does. I, I want to be the party party parent. Like, <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. he showed up a bunch in like our slide decks. So we yes. used them. Oh yeah, so good. Absolutely, <laughs> so funny. So very cool. So. In your talk, you talked about creating an environment um, that's that's friendly to failure, mm-hmm. which is something that we talk about a lot, too. Um, but I get a lot of product managers like, well, that's great, but how do I get my management to understand yeah. that? So do you have any tips or ideas that we can share? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um,
5: so if you're conducive to failure, you have to be anchored by what you're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Right. So everybody looks at failure as like missing deadlines or like that the whole world is going to end. Right. And Mm -hmm. what they don't understand is that failure can be done in like small little ways, right? right? Uh, If you run an experiment and it fails, it just means it missed its hypothesis. It's not like the whole company is gonna burn down unless you put all your resources on it. Like that's (laughs) terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, So what I try to explain to them is your maker, your maker, whoa, um, your manager (laughs) has to be anchored. There there we go. go, (laughs) In um, what you're trying to achieve. So if they can understand your outcomes, then you can show them your thought process in trying to get to the outcomes, and maybe some things you try that don't work. Okay, right. So that's like really what um, what's conducive to it, and it's also about trying not to throw people under the bus, right? right? Mm-hmm. Um, there is a culture with um, managers who just kind of blame their teams, mm-hmm. and that I don't know how, how much people can do in that situation if you're on these teams that are getting blamed for it. But you can go back to your manager and start asking for the things that you need. Mm-hmm. So I, inc- I, like, I encourage all my product managers to talk to me, I say, go to your manager and ask them, what's the vision? Like, where are we going? Mm-hmm. Um, if they can't tell you the vision, they're not doing their job. Right. Right? So yeah. they're actually a really poor manager to be following. So what's the vision? Like, what are the challenges? You know, and try to get on a good rapport with them where mm-hmm. you can just go back and keep asking for what you need to make decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that should help bring, you know, that should
6: give you some room to mm-hmm. actually start trying different things. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. it's definitely a challenge. Like, we've seen a lot of folks that say that. And it's like, I just, every failure is an opportunity to learn something. Mm-hmm. And I don't for me it baffles me that people yeah. just don't get that sometimes exactly and i think
5: Managers too, like you, I, I try to always encourage people who are having trouble with stakeholders or managers or anybody who's just giving them a hard time. Like, put yourself in their shoes and try to understand how they're being judged. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of companies like compensate people based on scorecards that don't yeah. really actually pertain to outcomes. And if you have a culture that's doing that or a company that has it, and it's more about the features you ship and that's how your manager gets paid, that's why they care, mm-hmm. right? So, you mm-hmm. have to understand that um, to really understand where you are. And there's there's some things that will be beyond your control that you can't change and then there's other ways that you can point out to your manager how maybe these ways of working will help set him up
2: more for success than the other ways and yeah. mm-hmm. help me help you yep
7: absolutely <laughs> yeah Cool.
2: Well, so where can people find you if they want to connect with you yep. online? Do you have a website, a Twitter?
5: I do. You find me on Twitter at Lissy Jean L-I-S-S-I, J-E-A-N. Uh, my website's melissaperry.com and our school's at Product Institute. Awesome. Thank you so much. We're
2: so happy to talk with you yep. today. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Awesome. All right, we're here with AJ from 3Pillar and Bob Mesta from Rewired Group. We're happy to have you here. You're speaking a little bit later.
8: Yeah, excited to be here as well. What a, uh, happy to be in Cleveland. You know, I love yep. it's. I always call it the, the, the better looking sister to the south because I'm from Detroit. So <laughs> it's it's uh, I, I love the city. It's a lot of fun.
2: Absolutely. And so could you tell us a little bit about yourself, about what you do? Just give us some background.
8: So, yeah, so I'm, a, I, I'm, a, I'm an engineer. I, I've been taking things apart since I've been about three years old. Nice. Uh, I figured out how to put them back together by the time I was six because I got in so much trouble. But I'm an engineer by kind of training, but more curious by nature. And I've uh, basically uh, helped develop and launch over 3,500 different products. So everything from uh, uh, weapon systems to uh, software to consumer packaged goods to, uh, I'm working uh, with uh, churches now, I'm working with schools, trying to do, so about a third of my work is big corporate, a third of my work is startup, and then a third of my work is um, not-for-profits. Very nice. So I have lots of fun, every day I have fun. So I kind of feel retired, though I'm only 52.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's a great track record. Yeah. Yeah. And so I've heard your name floating around with this concept called jobs to be done. Yeah. Can you explain that a little bit?
8: Yeah, so so jobs to be done is really it's like one of kind of about 25 different methods I've built or kind of acquired through the years of developing all these products and it really has to do with the customer and understanding the progress that customers are trying to make. And so what, what happened to me as an engineer is that I would get the marketing data and it would be demographic data or mm-hmm. psychographic data, and, but it didn't talk about what caused people to actually buy. And so it okay. would be, it's almost like a radar system. It had to triangulate. Well, if they're this old and they're at this point and they make this income and they, they have this uh, you know, background, like, okay, they, they could buy. And, and so to me, jobs is really about taking a very deep dive into people's lives like Jason Fried talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. really deep to the point of like, what things had to happen for you to say, today's the day I'm gonna buy your product, I'm gonna stop using this other product, and here's what I'm hoping for the moment I buy your product. And so it's about the trade-offs people make to make progress.
2: Okay, so it's very much about understanding your customer and everything like that?
8: So there's the consumer, and what we call the big hire, when they buy it, and then the little hire, when do they choose to engage with it. So it's at both levels, but What I found is I can make a product that is great at the little hire. It's so easy to use but nobody buys it, Mm -hmm. it doesn't work. I gotta get people to buy it. But if I make make it easy for people to buy but they can't use it, it doesn't work either. So it's a it's a it's a it's a lens to look at the product throughout, all the way from throughout the journey of of using.
9: Sure. Okay. So, um, I'm curious about one thing. Uh, is this a framework that you developed or how, how did it come together and how so, did you
8: get engaged? So, I'll talk about it. But I actually started uh, as a Dr. Deming's intern, which is Dr. Deming was the guy from Japan and he basically took me over there. And so, this all started with uh, the TQM movement. Mm-hmm. And so, it all had to deal with this notion of function and what what, what 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 do we want to do. And what we found were most measurements were on what the problems people had, not the outcomes people wanted. Sure. And so. This is a framework that, that my frustration of trying to get to design better products is I could only get people to talk about what they didn't want, not what they wanted. And so in the early 90s, basically, um, I, I kind of was forced to, to jump into a marketing realm where I, I didn't know much, and so it was really created out of that. And so it's, it's, it really was born from kind of the frustration of not knowing how to be a marketer. Sure. So that's, that's where amazing. it came from. But I, I've uh, collaborated with Clay Christensen on it. I've, uh, you know, There was people who hit in the beginning like uh, Rick Petey and uh, John Palmer. And there was a bunch of people that were around it. So I, I always kind of put it like I didn't invent it, but I was kind of one of the architects to kind of pull it together. Sure. And then I've been... Just using it, like so. It's one of those things where I can't not use it. Sure. Mm-hmm. So.
9: so, so in that context, so where do you see the framework to be applicable? Where do you see it becomes really powerful, and where does it really?
8: Yeah. So, so I, I want to. We're to two sides. One is where is it really applicable, and where is it not? Sure. Right. Okay. So it's really applicable at the edges. So where people are are going next? Where Where to innovate? Where to find new places for uh, new technology? So we talk about the struggling moment is the seed for all innovation. So if I can find out where people are struggling and what they're trying to do to make progress, I can then insert um, technology to solve it. So this is really the study of those struggling moments at the fringes of, of your product or of your customer and saying, where do they struggle and what else can I do? Where it doesn't work, so typically we only study people who have switched. So they stopped doing one thing and they did another, and we find this vector of progress that they've been making, and then we look at it and say, well, how many other people are trying to make that progress? Where it doesn't work is, for example, if if you buy Tide every week Mm -hmm. and you know, you, I go and talk to you about Tide, and I ask you, like, boy, what do you like about Tide, or why do you buy Tide? It's like, oh, it smells great. It gets my clothes cleaned. And, I, so, and you start asking more, like, well, how do you know it gets the clothes cleaned? Because it smells good. It's like the circular logic that has no, that has no understanding of where, where it goes. But when they switch and they stop doing one thing and they do something else, there is, there, there, there is some path. And to be honest, sometimes it's irrational, but once you wrap the right context around it, the, rash, the irrational becomes rational. Sure. And so that's, that's really, to me, uh, about where it works well. And it doesn't work when you're just trying to tell, why do people hire my product today? I can't tell you. Sure. Like, it, it's, it's really the switching moments is where it works best. Sure.
2: Absolutely. And so you're speaking later today. Is this what you're covering in your talk? Can you give us a preview? I will. will, So
8: I'm going to give a little bit of of the theory. I'm going to give a little bit of the framework. I'm going to then talk through some examples and different industries. So what I found is it's really important for people to kind of have it resonate with them personally. Mm-hmm. So I, I have an example where it's, it's really talking about what they, what's in their gut, like, oh my gosh, like that's me. And then mm-hmm. and then talk about kind of other people who've grown their businesses so they can start to relate to it in their business. So I have uh, different examples around that and then some really clear suggestions of what they should go do. So it'll be awesome. fun. Awesome.
2: Absolutely. Uh,
9: one more thing I'm curious about is, um, so the traditional product development call it traditional or the yeah. way we do things right now, uh, at a high level, there's sort of product management, user experience and design yes. and engineering, and all of these roles overlap in some way, but yeah. there is also some distinction to say, okay, product management, it tends to be a little more business focused yes. in many organizations. Um, user experience is sort of bringing the customer perspective and technology, of course, is bringing that perspective. As we look at jobs to be done framework, do you find that it aligns better with one function or is there, how, how does it bring? So, come into the Yeah, so that's
8: a great question. So, to be honest, on all the projects we work on, we use it as a foundational piece to ground the team in language. Sure. And so it actually feeds marketing strategy, engineering, uh, op- even operations, because it gets back to uh, instead of being opinions that people want to give, or, oh, I think it should be this. Or, it's like, no, customers said easy, and when we unpacked easy, easy meant less steps, and they didn't want to think. So here are the requirements that we have to do, Is like, this is what we have to be able to do. So from a marketing perspective, I'm not, I'm not talking about like, all these other things of what easy means, it's these very specific definitions of it. So to me, it's, it's really a, like a universal tool that can, uh, it, it allows everybody to get on the same page, and to be honest, everybody to work faster.
9: Sure. So, yes. still within that, do you see one uh, a a group uh, owning it, driving it? Oh, or so the so the people
8: who use so the people who usually own it are, are the people who own products, So product research, um, I don't see it necessarily as a market research tool, though it, it, in some companies it sits there. But it's mostly in in product product design, product research, uh, or engineering. Sure. Okay. So that's my experience.
2: Do you have any exciting projects in the pipeline that you want to talk um, about, or are they all confidential?
8: A lot of confidential, but there's, so I have uh, two things I'm working on that are pretty cool. One is I'm working on um, uh, in education we've been studying, why, why do people go back to uh, college? Oh, okay. And all the way from right out of high school, all the way to why, do, why does somebody 65 go to community college? and the jobs that they hire Mm -hmm. schools to do that. And so it's the social, emotional, and functional pieces of it. And then how do we actually help the colleges align to that? Because what happens is they treat every student as if they're exactly the same, Mm -hmm. and they got to take this many classes and get this many. And some students are coming in like, I don't want a degree, I just want to learn about this. And so what happens is they're going to boot camps instead of going to, the local college and the reality is how do we actually figure that out so we're writing a book with I'm writing a book with Michael Horn basically about helping students choose you know, people who want to learn more, what are the best options for them and how to frame the job they're trying to get done so they can choose better. Sure. And then on this flip side, how do we actually frame better education solutions for those people trying to get those jobs done? Sure. sure. So that's, that's kind of... That's so One of the things we're helping to design is a gap year experience for 18-year-olds. For hmm. Because they come out of school and most of them are like, I just want to get away from home. I have no idea what I want to do. Um, and I'm spending $25,000 a year to go to to school and the reality is like, if I pick business and all of a sudden I'm in accounting and two years in I'm like, oh, I hate accounting. I'm 50 grand in debt and I literally can't switch. Mm -hmm. And so how do we actually figure out how to help people know who they are, what they really like to do, and can we create a gap year experience that enables people to be better consumers of education?
9: So, what does the structure of such a study look like? Does it tend to be two
8: months focused? So, or it... so most, most, most of our studies, especially on product, we do in uh, one week sprints. Okay. And so, we do uh, 10, so a lot of people come and say, Oh, I want to do 50 interviews. And we'll say, No, we're going to do ten, five rounds of 10 interviews. We do 10 interviews, we do analysis. From it, then we figure out kind of what are the, what are the key insights we found, what are, the, what are the jobs we're going after, what are the higher fire criteria, struggling moments, et cetera. Then we figure out a prototyping strategy that we would go to basically confirm sure. what those are and then basically go do two weeks of prototyping and come back and do another sprint. Sure. So most people, we, so Jason's view of, of a, a six week kind of, uh, six a week gone and two weeks off is that, we, we adopted that as well and that's pretty much how we work. Sure.
9: Uh, that, that's essentially how uh, we're doing things at Three Pillar. so yeah, they completely yeah. relate to yeah.
8: Uh, so the concept. I found that, that just training people doesn't work. Yep. So so people come and say, can you just train us in the method? I can probably train them in two hours. But it's the it's the side by side of of actually what questions to ask and what's there and how do you actually the subtleties of the analysis and it, it's it's so much more effective that once once a team goes through a project, they can actually then you know they have enough experience to go replicate it themselves as a part to, um, you know, taking a class and trying to go through it. It's just really, really hard to do that way. Or to me, I, I, I would say I'm not effective enough as a teacher sure. to figure that out.
9: And so. so, in that particular methodology, have you looked into other frameworks like design thinking and other, do you find yeah. them to be the same? Oh, yeah.
8: So, I work, so I work with uh, uh, David Schoenthal at, at uh, Northwestern, he's also the uh, at uh, IDEO in, North, in Chicago. Sure. Uh, it's, it's all very complementary. To me, this is the input they need to, to for design because So, design thinking starts with the kind of the empathetic understanding, and that's to mm-hmm. me what it is. And so, it's just a, I see it as another tool in that toolbox for it, and it's just very, very efficient way in which to get the the trade-off, the causality, the higher fire crunch, I mean, it gets very, it's, it's a, a fairly rigorous process um, in a very qualitative, loose process. Sure,
9: sure. sure. You know, the, the one thing that I found interesting in competing with Luck, uh, yeah, uh, Clay, Chris, yeah. Road uh, uh, was the distinction between uh, a need yeah. and a job to be done. Yeah. What's your perspective, how would you? So
8: so this this has to do with what I call space and time, right? So a job is about a circumstance that somebody is in, and they, they, whatever they're doing now, they're not satisfied with. So they're struggling and it's like, whatever I'm doing now isn't good and I want something else better. And so part of it is, is for us to be able to do that. A, a need is, at, is is almost like at a, is at, at a core level and it's like almost always there. Sure. And so what happens is, is that, what what, what what I'm trying to say is that needs are actually caused and if we can understand in our lives what are the things that cause that need to emerge, that's really what I'm trying to do. So I'm framing it not as a static thing, but as a dynamic thing. Sure. And then how it moves through time, but also how it moves through space. Like, where are you when this happens, and where are you not when this happens? And so it helps us understand marketing, and, and again, what do I need to be robust to a whole bunch of other stuff?
9: Sure. So, if somebody wanted to, obviously there are online resources available, articles yeah, yeah, yeah. available. But if somebody wanted to go really deep into it and, and start understanding it at a, at a much deeper level, uh, what what kind of resources or what kind of
8: so I'm work, would you So that's one of the things I'm working on. So I'm uh, so one of my one of my partners is uh, uh, he's, he's he's moved out and he's taken a very big job at a, a I'll say a big company to run products somewhere, which is very excited for him. So what I'm doing is I'm kind of uh, moving back from I'll say the consulting side and moving to a coaching platform, and so kind of moving into more of a teaching kind of role. So the thing is, is trying to figure out how to make sure it's application-based, helping people, like, how do we actually find not-for-profit applications where we can teach people to do it, and it's doing good for the community. So there's different ways in which we're doing it. So I don't have that up and running yet, but that's uh, first quarter next, next year is what I'm working on. But there, we have a, like, if you want to learn how to, we have an interviewing technique class that's on jobsbedone.org. Um, we have a podcast at job, uh, Jobs Be Done Radio, uh, so there's different places about it. See, the, the other thing is I'm dyslexic, so it's very hard for me to write and to be able to read. I can't read, so it's really difficult for me. I always, I'm always looking for partners to collaborate with the create materials. Sure, so,
2: awesome, so, very nice. Very nice. okay. And where can people connect with you specifically? Do you have a Twitter? Yeah, Twitter, at B Mesta,
8: B-M-O-E-S-T-A, uh, or LinkedIn, Bob Mesta. You know, that's the best way.
2: Awesome. Thank well, you. thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Unless you have anything else. No, that is it. Thank that was awesome. Thank you, guys. Looking forward to your talk later. Excited this is great. to be here, guys. Thanks. Yeah. See you. Absolutely. Bye. All right, we're here with Anthony. Welcome, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do?
7: A little bit about myself. So like I said, I'm an associate producer at Purple Films, based Mm -hmm. out of Cleveland. We're right outside of downtown. And what we do is create authentic video and and stories for uh, brands, uh, uh, businesses. So our niche is, like I said, Creating authentic content for the company's brand and uh, the audience to bring value to both sides of the party.
2: Very nice. And is this your first time at the conference?
7: It is, actually. and. Um- we Part of the reasons we're here is uh, we did the intro video earlier. Did uh, you? You guys okay. probably saw that, yeah. Yeah,
2: that was awesome. So
7: thank you. Thank you. Did
2: you have a hand in that? Did you work on it yourself?
7: Uh, a little bit. I was in a couple meetings with them and we kind of initiated the project a little bit and then uh, I got to give a shout out to our creative team, um, Jimmy, George. I got to give a shout out to the whole team, Jimmy, George, uh, Dan, Melissa, and uh, Crash. Crash, oh, so crash. And I say, I said Joe too. Yeah, I, I said everyone. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Well, his name, real name's Nick, but I, I usually don't say his real name. So it's just Crash. It's Crash. <laughs> that's a good way. Crash, yeah. yeah, that's a
2: good thing to go by. If yeah. you go by Crash, you don't want to go by Nick.
7: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Crash is a cool name. Well,
2: yeah. There's a story behind Crash,
6: maybe. It's
7: confidential. No, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know the exact story actually. It just uh, they introduced me him as Crash. I'm I'm one of the newer guys, so okay. they introduced me introduced cool. uh, introduced him as Crash. So to me, so
2: just kind of stuck,
7: kind of stuck. Yeah. Nice.
2: So what have you been hearing today? Anything stuck out to you? What's been like your big thing where you were like, oh, my God, that's awesome.
7: Oh, man. Well, I really liked um, Josh's speech. Josh and on. Um, yeah. and, and because I can relate to a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, our, our niche that I said earlier, is authentic storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think um, any business that tries to promote their brand, uh, really put a um, name for themselves they promote the product too much instead of the people. They try to get after mm-hmm. the product more than the people. I and mean, I think that's, I mean, I'm, I'm young to this, but I kind of realize that's a little bit of a mistake yeah. Yeah. to uh, do. You got to be genuine, you got to be authentic. And I think that's when people go more into your brand. I mean, when he showed the Google commercial earlier, that I remember seeing that during the Super Bowl and that was really cool. So uh, that's an example right there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like that's kind of a theme of this whole conference is that you really need to focus on the people behind the product. Mm-hmm. And like, who are you building for rather than like, this is something I want to build. It's more like, how is this going to impact people? Am I really serving my customer base? That kind of thing.
7: Rather than selling your product, sell your story. That's when people really look at it.
2: Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I heard through the grapevine that they're going to put this on in Dublin next year.
7: Really? Yeah. Dublin's a beautiful city, actually.
2: You're going to be in Dublin next year for the (sighs) conference? I
7: would love to do that. We'll see. (laughs) Right? We'll see. Uh, I I did like Dublin a lot, so I might have to make the trip. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: It's a good excuse to go and drink a lot of Guinness. Oh, and Guinness,
7: Jameson, and... uh, more of that.
2: Exactly. Call <laughs> yeah. it work.
7: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go to Temple Bar District and then you get some uh, authentic Irish food. I mean, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of it, but believe me, there is good Irish food over there. Oh, <laughs> I bet.
2: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for oh, coming on the podcast. Thank
7: you, uh, Julia and uh, Lindsay. Lindsay. Okay. Yeah. Nice to meet you guys. Thank yeah, you. you. too. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
2: We're here at Industry the
1: Product Conference. First time?
10: First time, absolutely.
1: Yeah, ours too. It's been going on a couple of years. Excited to be here. I'm here with Vern Kennedy and our CTO, Jonathan Rivers. Jennifer Ives on the mic. We were talking about the, a few minutes ago, we were discussing the um, return on investment back to your clients' customers. Right. right? So I want to just jump right in with, with that piece. Okay. Talk to me about that we're going to have a
10: conversation. All right, fair Go. enough. We <laughs> we're just a different kind of software company. I mean, one of the things that my co-founders and I talked about in the beginning was the problem with a lot of software companies is that they tend to force features and products down consumers throats whether they're B2B or B2C and they're solving
1: they, their own. This is what we think
10: yeah, the problem
1: is and this is how we're going to solve it. And by the way, customer then you board. should buy
10: it because because my vision is right and we just wanted to be a different type of organization than that. I, I was the beneficiary of some very good training uh, back 20 years ago, more than now. Then uh, <laughs> you know when I when I started in my business career and they the, the point of that was really that industry in general needed to shift, right? It needed to go away from, here's a stack of brochures and features, stop me when you see one you like and we'll talk about it, to more solutions-based selling, right? Understanding the client's need, what is their problem, what are they trying to solve for their clients, right? Now flip forward 20, 25 years, and think of starting a software company with that mentality, you know, where we just want to go out there and say, okay, what are the problems our customers are facing? Build features for that, and then ultimately, not only will they buy it, they'll champion it. Yeah, yeah it's, it,
4: it's absolutely right, I mean, product versus software. Products are things that people choose. Software are things that people have to use, so a timesheet system, an HR application. uh, You know, you don't get to choose those, but products get chosen every time. You think about all of the apps on uh, your phone and how often you've used them and whether or not you can delete them, and that just ties into user-centricity. So why would I want to dictate features, which is telling people what to use, when I should be listening to them and and doing what they ask? I mean, ultimately, they're going to give me money It's an odd form of modern patronage. Mm
1: -hmm. So what makes a good product?
4: One that is hyper-serving their client base. I mean, you, you see it in the marketplace time and time again. The best of breed applications are not the best technically. They're not always, um, you know, the best looking. I mean, look at Ways, right? It looks like a children's application. I, I, I can barely use it because it looks like my first app by Fisher Price, but it's dominating the market because they listen relentlessly to what their customers want and continually put more and more of that in it doesn't matter what it looks like. It matters about the feature set and are they meeting people's desires and what the customers yeah.
1: and for you we're talking about that earlier.
10: Yeah, we 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 have a pretty interesting UI and I think that a lot of people like the functionality of our individual product.
1: Give a shout out
10: w- company. Oh, the company's name is ActiveWrite and that's A C T I V E W R I T E. We've, we've taken some hits in terms of criticism. People look at the website and they'll say, well, that's really product focused. That's not outcome based. You really need to be more outcome based. And I'm like, okay, it'll be another evolution because you should see the first version of our website. Whoa, was it bad, right? But at least this one talks to our strengths as an individual core. but." You know, we find that when we go out there and we sell, we, we have to treat each individual feature as though it were a standalone product. Yeah. yeah. You know? Each one of our customers is only going to use two, three, or four of our features. They could use 20 of them, but they don't have that need. And it's not our job to force that on them. Right?
1: How do you get that constant feedback from your customers? What's your favorite way? Well,
10: I think, you know, I... I tend to like to do things in person and, and see things out of eye. And I love coming to conferences and I love going and, and getting people outside of their office too. Mm-hmm. It could be a lunch, it could be a dinner. You know, it's people people say golf or, you know, whatever. But getting them getting them out on the boat, giving them on cocktail, getting, you know what I mean? And just saying, habitat. yeah, <laughs> let's, let's just relax and forget all the pressures of the office and then tell me what are the things that keep you up at night, right? What are your real problems? And if we can then put a tech team on it and code around those problems, you you've got a customer for life. Yeah, and I think you know. To that end, one of my favorite things to do
4: when designing features or improving features is having my engineers actually watch people use the software. Too often it's done in a vacuum where they're, they're creating it, they're, they've got some specifications, they've got user stories, they've got all of these things. But actually, all right, so I want you to go stand behind that person, they're going to, to use the application and watch them. And it's amazing how design decisions change, even at an engineering level, when they watch people move the mouse around, or if you've ever seen it, it's really frustrating watching anyone else use a computer. Uh, You know, if you're sharing something in a meeting, or you know how an application works, you're like, just just click there, click there, click, it's it's right up top, it's quite, but they don't. But they don't do it, and so you have to learn that they're not doing it, and what do I need to do to make them more efficient, Uh, and everyone else less frustrated watching them, and that's improving it and and focusing not on what you want them to do or how you think they should do it, but how it's natural to them.
10: Yeah, that's, that's that's huge for us, and fortunately, I'm, I'm a non-technical person who runs a software company, right? So every time the developers roll something out, they got to, I, I say, okay, imagine I'm a three-year-old, right? And roll it out to me. The trouble is our three-year-olds nowadays can actually work <laughs> a computer better than I can. Uh, but. You know, and then we can say, "Do you see how this feels a little clunky?" We we got to where we wanted to be, but I want it to be more intuitive, right? So we'll leave it on the QA side of this of the server, you know, for another week or two, and then we'll, then we'll roll it out and go live with it.
4: Yeah, I mean, true mastery is being able to explain something complex in, in simple terms. And the more that your team has to practice that, just the, the better and better their software is going to be because they're going to think in simplicity. How am I going to be able to roll this out and be able to explain it to Vern afterwards, right? right. It's,
10: a great, it's a great design point. It's a great design point, but it's a really lousy elevator pitch. I mean, we have we have done, like... We've, we've got 20, 25 different features. They're all really cool. You know, Gardner and some other people have looked at us and we made the cool vendor guide this year. Congratulations. And, and, thank you. And it, it's, my biggest problem now is explaining it to people who don't know what I know and, and don't know what I do, right? And they go, well, tell me what your product does. And I, I'm like, no, tell me what your frustrations are and then, then we'll talk about what my product does, right? Because I don't want to spend 20 minutes explaining how much better I handle these five things if these other three things are more, what what floats your boat? Yeah. You know what I mean. Yeah. What what really gets you excited?
1: So, did you have a good takeaway from Josh's conversation around storytelling, so that you can have two or three of those stories to, to to ideally hit on some of the pain points that you're hearing from your customers? Yeah, I'm a that big. Was a good
10: I'm session. A, it really was, and I'm a big storyteller, and I'm a big believer in that way to convey information and enthusiasm. People, when you start using industry buzzwords, and we talked a little bit about this earlier, you know, even if it's in a presentation that somebody else prepared for me and I'm giving it up, I'll say things like, and this next slide proves that we're buzzword compliant, (laughs) you know? So you got to make it more relatable. Otherwise, people's eyes glaze over, and the longer the the speech is, the more you lose them. you got to bring them back in. Mm
1: -hmm. Did you have any other favorite... Uh, speakers from today's conference so far. Um, Anybody else in the morning? And I ask not only because I'm interested in what you want to, what has been really clicking with you and, mm-hmm. and, and resonating with you, but also Jonathan is running the, the talk shop conversation with a with I think Melissa and Josh next, correct? Yep. Mm-hmm. So anything you want Jonathan to dig back into with them or talk about?
10: You know, I'd love. I uh, I saw Melissa's bio before we before we got here, and she's one of the people I wanted to kind of bump into and and, and talk to and introduce myself. Um, I bumped into Ty on the way over here. This okay. morning, and then we talked also after your your shop talk, and he just seems to be, you know, fantastic. I'm, I mean, and really open and genuine, to, you know. But a lot of people here are. Well, it's it's, it's passion and authenticity, right? Right. The product
4: is. One of the next frontiers, right? You know, we were talking about Agile a little bit and, and, and Melissa had the joke about Agile. Everybody gets it, right? Pump software out every two weeks. Yeah, yeah, sprint, retrospective, stand up, get it, got it, got it. But but actually, building the right things in the right order is, is the next big frontier and I think all of the speakers and, and most of the attendees are just so
10: passionate to geek out about that and, and go into uncharted territory, stuff that is really new and fresh. I do like what Jason said this morning, uh, you know, when he said that he only does things six weeks in advance or yes. eight weeks in advance. And I don't know that I, um, you, you know, we don't have that kind of a, a philosophy where we'll, um, where we'll take two weeks off to brainstorm in between sessions. We tend to do that among the co-founders and other key people within the organization, and it just sort of evolves. But we do things in four to six week rollouts. Yep. You know, we had, we had a client that wanted, that came to us and said, well, we're, we think that your product is superior to everything else we've looked at and we want to recommend it to our clients. The only thing that it's currently cannot do in its current state is to become 508 compliant, you know, people with disabilities, right? And they said, we talked to one of the other people who's a cool vendor this year and they're the incumbent there and they said, well, give us some money and we'll make our product 508 compliant. And I'm like by what time do you need us to be 508 compliant by conventional standards? And they're like, 60 days. And I said, done. It'll be done by the end of October. Now will you buy the product? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> you know to yeah. me it just makes sense right Why go back and it gets to that underlying philosophy give the clients what they want and what they need yeah. and then you'll get champions for life and you weren't holding your hand out
4: first which is no. what the other vendor the, the other vendor before they would have a conversation about something held their hand out pay me and I will do this for you not I want to serve you I want your business right you asked for business if you will sign up with me I will give you what you need mm-hmm. and I, I,
10: it's missing in the market these days I did that for somebody here the other night. He was like, oh, we have this problem, and we, we generate content, and we do so on and so forth, but here's our problem, we can't tell who hits our website, and so we can't use that. And I said, well, that's a relatively easy fix. I said, I'll tell you what, why don't we do this? I will fix that for you for free, just listen to my pitch. Walk through a product demo with me, I'll fix it for free for you. Nice. You know, you don't, No strings attached, yeah. you know what I mean? Because I got a guy that can do that in five, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, or whatever. It'll be like a one-for-one exchange. Yeah. (laughs) Leading with value. Right. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, if you don't buy anything, great. At least I solved your problem. I mean, why can't we be the company that stops on the side of the road and changes a tire for a complete stranger? Right. I do it in my personal life.
1: Yeah, it's our philosophy. at three pillars too. So that's when when we chatted earlier today. Yeah. I thought you've got to get on the mic with us and share a little bit about what you do, how you do it, how you work with your customers, how you bring value to your customers
10: first. So thank, thank you. you. Yeah, thank thanks you. So I really much. appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, thanks for really, coming out. Really yeah, it. we'll see you around the conference. Awesome.
2: And that's a wrap on the interviews from day one at Industry Summit. Information on each of the speakers can be found in the show notes if you're interested in learning more about what any of our guests on this episode had to say. If you're interested in hearing more, go ahead and hit play on the next episode of the podcast, where we're bringing you interviews with Nancy Kramer of IBM IX, Jim Foxworthy of Pragmatic Marketing, and Three Pillar CTO Jonathan Rivers, who you may remember from our previous episode on why innovation labs fail.